Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're excited to present a conversation with director Todd Haynes, whose new film, May December, will make its North American premiere as the opening night selection of the 61st New York Film Festival on September 29th. In this archival conversation with Todd Haynes, the director discusses his mid-90s classic, Safe, starring his May-December and Far From Heaven leading actress, Julianne Moore. While Haynes shot Safe in 1994, he set it at the height of the AIDS epidemic seven years earlier. The unnamed disease at the center of this indelible, shuddering movie, widely considered one of Haynes's masterpieces, has taken on new, unexpected meanings since the film's release. And yet much of what makes Safe relevatory to watch is the uncanny precision of its setting, look, and tone. Carol, played by Julianne Moore, whose mysterious breakdown from perfect housewife to cloistered invalid drives the movie's plot, is a character who couldn't live anywhere but suburban LA in the late 80s, a landscape Haynes captures in a strange, piercing, hyper-real light. Jonathan Rosenbaum called Safe the most provocative American art film of the year in 1995. It's hard to imagine any movie topping it were it released today. We're happy to announce Michael Mann's Ferrari as the closing night selection of the 61st New York Film Festival. Michael Mann brings his astonishing command of technique and storytelling to bear on his thrilling new film, an emotional, elegantly crafted dramatization of the life of the legendary car manufacturer and entrepreneur, Enzo Ferrari, at a professional and personal fulcrum. The film stars Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz. NYFF 61 takes place from September 29th through October 15th. Passes are now on sale and are going fast, and are discounted through August 17th. Get yours at filmlink.org slash passes. Now please enjoy the conversation between Todd Haynes and moderator, NYFF artistic director, Dennis Lim. Is this kind of like the 20th anniversary screening for SAFE? It it kind of is. Yeah. Yeah. Call it that. Exactly. Um, Yeah, I, this... How old are you, Dennis? old enough <laughs> no but um, I actually remember very vividly seeing this film opening weekend at the Angelica and seeing it many times that summer <laughs> and uh, no it's, it was very important I think for me to open the retros- the, the weekend with this film I don't say this about a lot of films but I think safe changed my life so it's a really you know a huge deal for many people thank you um, I wanted to maybe just start by going back to 1995. One thing I remember very uh, vividly about the conversation around the film was just how much conversation there was. It was a different time in film culture, obviously. Um, but also, people really had a hard time figuring out this film. Um, now, you know, 20 years on, do you have a sense of why? Like, what, what, what was it that tripped people up? Well, yeah. I mean, of course. Um, I mean, for one thing, this was my second feature. My first feature film was Poison. This was my second feature. And I think there were expectations around what this whole mantle of the new queer cinema meant, what what 
kind of films would follow. Poison, that was certainly a part of it. But I think Safe is a film that plays with all kinds of levels of restraint, of, of you know, holding back access to the central character, um, frustrating our normal access into psych- psychological understandings or payoffs. And then there's this final act and what it means, you know. And uh, I th- it leaves you feeling unsettled and, and asking a lot of questions. And uh, there are little, maybe slightly mischievous tricks in safe as well where you learn that Peter Dunning is a AIDS sufferer who runs Renwood and so you're immediately oriented especially in those days to think oh he's a rel- going to be a reliable character morally and um, and so it, it 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 sort of takes you off course I think it does that like consistently throughout the film. I mean, like it, almost every step of the way, it complicates things. Yeah, I even remember reading um, reviews that describe this film as having a happy ending, right? Um, which is really unusual, and I think actually really works nicely with uh, showing Sir absolutely <laughs> later yeah. on. This um, this to me is my most successful false happy ending, Cirque and false happy ending of any <laughs> film I've made. I think Far from Heaven, which is much more indebted to Cirque obviously, it doesn't really follow that. It actually has a sad ending, you know, a poignantly sort of sad ending um, where you can actually feel a little relief of some of the tensions in the film. And this one does not do that. This one really follows, I think, the Serbian model more closely. <clears throat> As you said, I think it was a very, it was kind of a turning point for you, I think, Safe, um, you know, very different from Superstar, and then Poison, both of which were sort of, you know, these controversial lightning rod films, Poison especially. Um, right. And I, this, I feel like this was not the film people were expecting you to make. Clearly. Like yes. Um, it also, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, it also sort of introduced people to Julianne Moore. But that performance is so, so complicated and so, you know, it, it functions on so many different levels that I again I don't I think you realize you she was an extraordinary talent and an amazingly profound sort of presence on film but again what you're supposed to get from it and take away from it I think was probably um, still you know what was really interesting though I have to say is that even within I have no I have no um, um, regrets or gripes about its reception even in that first year critics <clears throat> saw the film it opened up a lot of debate and questioning within the critical community <clears throat> and many people sounds like yourself as well went back to see the film that year and kind of continued to think about it and talk about it and uh, uh, feelings about the film changed within that one year and certainly changed over time so I felt like there was a real it wasn't like it was rejected it was just sort of grappled with <clears throat> Um, so you mentioned, uh, obviously, Julianne Moore, this being her first big role. You had seen her, I, I, I guess, in Shortcuts before this? I had seen that? her in Shortcuts. I had written Safe with an actress in mind who was not a name star, who was a friend of mine who actually appeared in, in, in Poison. Now I can say everything because no one, she's so wonderful. And she's in Safe. She plays the best friend, um, 
I can't think of the character's name, the one who, the blonde character whose brother died of AIDS, we, we assume, in that character. Na um, Susan Norman is the actress's name. I can't think of the character's name on this for some, some reason. But we had, it took years to get the film financed. As you can imagine, it was not an easy sell. Christine Vachon, my producer and friend and partner, she just kept fighting and going back to the financial world and just we didn't need much money for it we were looking for a million dollars but um i would have probably given up and christine was you know just tireless and and indomitable about it and um uh and then it sort of became apparent that maybe having someone who was rising on the you know in the public eye as an actor might help us um do you remember what it was like to 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 write for for a character like Carol, who struggles so much with words, I mean, language is such an important part of the film. Too, yes. And, and um, well, one thing I did was I interviewed women with environmental illness. I went to Wimberley, Texas, and did a little research um, and talked to people who were suffering from this. And um, and this just was one of the many. I grew up in. Southern California and some of these neighborhoods are literally places my parents lived and um, so I knew this world although I was taking a particular somewhat harsh look at it um, so I was familiar with the speech and the, the the manner of speech and what dialogue might be like but that those interviews were really extraordinarily helpful and the final speech of Julianne's in the film comes directly from pieces of of real interviews that I that I conducted, where she loses her train of thought, it sounds like she's improvising and she's kind of making it up. She's literally following the text to the you know comma and syllable <clears throat> perfectly. She was extremely protective of the script. Julianne, any actor who deviated from it, was met with some um, some consternation on her part. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I I had you know look, I was inspired by great films and filmmakers like John Dielman's, uh, but like Chantal Ackerman's John Dielman. I thought I was watching 2001. I mean, I, I had a very strong kind of stylistic idea of, of what this could be, but I was also interested in the kind of absent center of the character of Carol and um, what kinds of things that would do to you watching it <clears throat> in reading into the causes uh, of this illness, what it might mean, and the relationship between the tender relationship, or, or at least maybe, maybe the synonymous relationship between immunity and identity and unconsciousness, and how all of those things start to be sort of stripped down and reveal that all those things kind of work when you're not paying attention to them. And once attention is paid to immunity, identity, um, once the unconsciousness is lifted, all those things start to fumble. And so all those questions were built into this sort of somewhat impenetrable, almost forgettable central figure of Carol. Um, you situate the film very pointedly in 1987. Um, can you say a bit about about that, and also, you know, this? What were these? Um, what were some of the sort of the, the the starting points for you? I mean, you've you've talked about the the Louise Hay 
kind of like yeah. new age self-help um self-help self-blame kind of doctrine that was very prevalent at the time yeah. um was we, what what were some of the things that you were thinking of and, and was was the mid-90s around the time where you where you started thinking about making a film like this it, it followed really immediately after poison i knew it was something i wanted to do next <clears throat> um it just took us that long to get it financed and i did dotty gets spanked in the interim um which was a short film we did for itvs for pbs um it yes, the the sort of issues around disease and sort of finding you know causes and um, comprehending illness around HIV was what motivated this film as it had poison, but this and more sort of therapeutic and the sort of recovery industry and ways people were being asked to look at answers to illness and their own responsibility behind illness were things that were motivating me. Um, I felt this desire to sort of set a, a metaphor for AIDS about as far away from the war zone as I could imagine. And so I found it, you know, somehow compelling to put it in this very unlikely place. Um, a place that seemed ultimate, entirely safe and immune to these kinds of questions and these kinds of uncertainties. Um, you mentioned Jean Dielman in 2001. They were, in fact, I think two films we considered showing yes. together with, uh, with Safe, but of course settled on Imitation of Life. Um, do you want to say a little, just a bit more about those two films? Um, I think it's an, in, those, they're two interesting films to, to put together. Together. Um, and I mean, to start with Jean Dielman, uh, in a way you can see the similarities, but I think Carol is actually a much harder figure to read than, she, absolutely. than Jean Dielman. I mean, Jean Dielman is actually a strong character yeah. who's, who's very decisively taking action to supplement her life and to survive. Um, it's just that we're only watching the so-called empty routines of her domestic life. And and through those routines, we start to see the beginning of an unraveling of that strength or that control in her um, choices as a as a single mother and wife. And um, she's a mother, right? I haven't seen it in a while. Um, but I think it was just also just simply the power of understatement, the power of that intense symmetry in those frames, um, the unexpected. Just what, how withholding narrative sort of pleasure and rewards and for a viewer, what unexpected mysterious rewards that would offer you. I just remember watching, you know, seeing it in college, looking at the syllabus going, oh, holy shit, a three and a half hour movie or whatever it was and going, here we go. And then being absolutely, you know, just held by this film. And, uh, and when you see her going through the routines and toward the end of the movie and when she pours that extra cup of water into the coffee maker, I think it is, and everyone in the room went, <gasps> and it just spoke to this, you know, brilliant conceptual inversion of what narrative is supposed to do and how it's supposed to function and how much we make those small things come to life as viewers. And so that just was so brilliant and um, and then just the frame being so unrelenting and then you know 2001 just the sense of it being this completely 
I just wanted to feel like every all the air and safe was recycled air, like you were in an airport and you were on one of those conveyor walkways and everything. There was just carpet that would go from floor to ceiling. There would just be a sense of space and the, the sense of the natural being completely and totally removed from human existence. That's just, those were the, the sort of feelings that those films evoked, the right. robot film in particular evoked, and I wanted to bring to suburban contemporary life. Right. It, it was a period film. I made it in 1995, but I set it in 1987, so I could look far back right. into the past. <laughs> it's interesting to make a period film that also is like kind of a science fiction film. Yeah, too, you know? or a horror, or, or, and horror, horror, horror film. film. Yeah. Wes Craven called it the scariest film of the year in, when he saw it. So you were thinking of it, obviously, as a horror film and engaging engaging horror as a genre, too, which I think I think Safe does. It was this weird hybrid of horror, genre, disease movie of the week. Um, and, and really, I, I would say maybe ultimately the, the disease movie in the sort of way the final act serves as a redemptive kind of answering to questions that we ultimately impose on characters and particularly in disease movies because the sufferers of illness aren't necessarily going to survive the illness so the onus sort of is shifted onto the individual to come to some kind of understanding or realization or identification with the illness or with other sufferers of the illness as like people like themselves. And, and so redemption falls on, it's sort of a burden on the individual. So I, sort of, I was interested in, in how our desire for narrative closure sends this woman back into repression. And that often that's what closure is. It's, a, it's new forms of repression that we impose on subjects in stories. And, but, and that's why in Cirque movies, the cost of res resolution is felt, is exposed, and you feel something is wrong with people making these final decisions of, in their life. And yet they're tied up with a bow, and then you're, you're left going, wait a minute, that can't be right. That can't be the answer. And yet you, you also want the narrative to resolve. So how narrative resolves and the force of narrative is antithetical to what feels right or ethical to the character. So you've, um, you've seen the film again recently, I assume. There was a Around the, the Criterion, the criterion re release. Right? release right. Yeah. Um, and how do you feel it, it plays 20 years later in... in it, it's it's so rooted in its time, but I think it's also there's something just very. It, it does speak to the current. It does. Moments. I mean, and people do tell me they feel like it. It always sort of spoke that it seemed to be speaking to the future, mm -hmm. or but again, it's almost like what J.G. Ballard says that the future. When people asked him what the future really was, he said it was the Californiaization of the world. You know, the great science fiction writer, and I'm like, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's all right there in California culture and, and recovery industries and health industry, health practice and, and the ways we, you know, take on blame for our conditions when we can't, you know, when we have no other answers uh, for them. 
All right, let's take some questions from the audience. Um, yeah, and okay, I can, uh, I'll try to paraphrase something about uh, it, it isn't clear the, the reason why she's sick uh, and how that fits in, I guess, with New or Age how, yeah, thinking how, or doesn't. How New Age thinking tries to find maybe easy answers or easier answers or concise available answers for bigger, bigger issues. Really, it's this beautiful quote from Cancer Sufferer who said, we humans would rather accept culpability than chaos, over chaos. And it's a way that we blame ourselves when we have no other recourse. I mean, what's, what, you know, this film follows the disease movie, but the values normally assigned to illness and cures are inverted by the film so that it's the illness that, that really breaks her out of... Um, her world and makes her look at it and thrusts her into into realizations about things that aren't particularly right or happy for her. And it's the cure that sort of forces her back into a contained world, very much like the one we find her in at the beginning of the movie. Yep, at the back. Yes. Definitely. I No, I, I think that's all absolutely true. I, I do think you find yourself asking a lot of questions about causality, about um, responsibility, about um, psychology uh, through, the, through the course of the film, though. And I do think those are related to narrative traditions that I think engage, catch us all up into it. And to and and I and I, I feel like they're important um, mo movements through the film too that I that I was interested in watching you follow. You're never completely unsettled by it. You never feel full access to Carol, or that you completely comprehend, you know, her. It's and 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 but as you say, it's not as if there was a happy domestic life that this illness upsets. It's like there's something wrong to begin with. The illness just becomes a way of examining it and opening it up. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I was also interested in the sort of long, complicated history of women and illness and the ways that they, they are pathologized by through their, you know, disease in the world. And uh, how often that becomes their own problem and a problem that ha that professionals have to solve for them. Um, so, and the history of hysteria and all of those things that 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 long preceded this story in this setting. But uh, but because when I first heard about environmental illness, it was like housewives are becoming intolerant to the 20th century. That's how it was described in news accounts. I was like, wow, that deserve some serious <laughs> examination. I like that. That had some potential, I thought, for a subject for a film. Yeah. Question about uh, depicting the internal conflict of characters. Uh, yeah, I guess there is. I mean, one thing about the film is that there's this def there's this very concerted sort of language of distance that's being played out. It's a distance that we occupy from Carol. It's a distance that she seems to occupy from herself. It's a distance she seems to occupy from her husband and her peers. 
And yet she also is learning everything about how to behave from her environment. Her environment is basically telling her who she is, but at this, but, that, that, but then she ha gains access to a kind of critique of that that starts to make her question <clears throat> the environment as a concept. So in, in this way, it, it is all being externalized. <laughs> it is all being externalized by the world that's being shown to you. It's just, uh, you know, uh, and, and I guess that's all the way, that's true all the way through the film, even though there becomes this language of interiority, language of the self, language of love of self, and all these things that starts to enter into the film as a sort of answer to all of that distance and all of those, those uh, outside in kind of uh, setups for the, in the film. Yep. Yeah, the sound, the whole sound design and the, the way music and sort of sound design have a very, um, you know, semi-peripheral uh, relationship. And Ed Tomney was the composer of Carol, of Safe Carol. And he, uh, my second Carol. Um, but he would use, he'd sample, he'd, he'd stick his uh, microphone down the piping of his Brooklyn, of his Manhattan Broadway uh, apartment, old, old apartment building, down several floors and just collect the ambience and use that as, sample that as a core sound for melodic composition. He was always collecting raw sounds and sampling them and putting them through usually old computer systems. Um, but I love that. I just thought that was so absolutely correct for the, the feeling of the film. So the, where the music ends and where the ambience and the tones and the sort of disquiet of traffic and noise and static and all of those things uh, begin is a, you know, is a constant sort of wash throughout the film. Yeah. Well, no, I love that. I mean, I haven't watched on the big screen in a long time. I wish I was able to tonight. That would have been really fun. Um, but I do remember, and I, you know, we color timed it for the Criterion release. So I went through the film with with those guys. Um, that you know, interesting. Calif Los Angeles light. I haven't shot a lot of films in L.A. Although I'm from L.A., even Mildred Pierce we shot in New York for L.A. But it has a lot of uh, uh, dust in the air. It's why the sunsets are so vivid in. California. It's why the green shrubs in Los Angeles are always sort of brownish looking, even on clear days. And when if you come back east, and when I remember going to the East Coast for the first time for college, the winters seem so, the blacks of branches and the greens of trees seem so vivid and unmuddied by um, complementary colors by the red in the in the air so that smoggy kind of haze you know that that hangs over california and it's improved greatly over the over these decades um is was still a feeling of a contaminant you know but then there was the sort of poisoned <laughs> design colors of the 80s those those teal greens and those 
mauve magentas and those sort of clinical colors in the hospital and all that stuff. So hopefully that stuff also compounds the overall feeling of that we're all sort of being poisoned as we watch the movie together. <laughs> it is. I mean, I, I, get, I don't know if people heard the question, but um, you sort of raised a lot of the themes that we've been talking about. But um, And also just how isolation becomes both the problem and the answer to the problem. Like that, that the, the sealed off gated communities that you see at the beginning and the way Carol lives and and then the tiny safe house that she ends up in. It's all of these extreme, all these variable kind of examples of isolation, even when they're prized uh, emblems of success and, and um, safety. Or Peter's house on the hill, all of those things that looks the most like Carol's house uh, as anything had until after she'd moved to, to uh, New Mexico. Oh, God, you know, he's just, uh, you know, like the fact that he kind of covers the entire waterfront from from ambient music that is obviously a influence in 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 safe and was comprised all of the the temp tracks that we cut to. So Ed Tomney had to take all those tracks and try to make his own versions of them. And he does such a beautiful job doing so that one cue I could not give up uh, of her out by the pool toward the beginning of the film and so we went to Eno and just begged Madonna had given us what is which song is it um, Lucky Star for so little money it was like so incredibly cool of her that everybody else had to follow the same amount like Belinda Carlisle and Kenny Loggins all those guys so she said that I don't think Eno would have overcharge me but but he was he we got the song I don't even remember how I don't think I'm sure it wasn't nearly as costly as other things but um, but then yeah then the other side of his music what that preceded his ambient music and all the stuff he's done since was his glam rock era stuff of course and that um, when David Bowie did not end up giving us the seven songs that had sort of been somewhat the formative ideas in for for the, a lot of songs in Velvet Goldmine, or or serve specific scenes and ideas, it opened up this opportunity, which I think the film is way better for, <clears throat> of bringing of introducing people to a lot of the Eno music from those years and Roxy music from those years and Steve Harley Cockney Rebel and bands that are far less known in the United States, um, and then Eno himself came to. Uh, the Cannes Film Festival when Velvet Goldmine was in competition in 1998 with Brian Ferry and they sat next to me but they sat behind me <laughs> and they hadn't like they hadn't spoken to each other I mean they'd recently started to speak to each other because they have kids in the same school had kids in the same school at the time but it had taken something like 20 you know whatever yeah 20 years before they did after Eno left the band so I was trying to enjoy my experience of being in comp can competition for the first time, but I really just wanted to hear what these guys were saying to each other behind my back. And just the fact that Eno was there was meant everything to me. Uh, we can take one final quick question. Uh, yeah. Did people hear that? 
Um, I think the, uh, the, this, the film left this viewer uh, depressed about Carol's choices. <laughs> um, and she wanted to know if other people felt that way. So, uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I think, <laughs> yes, it's, I think it's, a, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but she does what we do. We all do this. We all do this in various ways. When we, when we get a cold, we say, oh, I made myself sick. You know, oh, I did this to myself. Or I, it's, to me, it's, it's part of this, basically, I think it's like part of free market ideology that, that makes the individual feel that we control our world and our destiny and that we, um, you know, that social issues are not the factor. It's up to us that we are, you know, we can pluck ourselves up and we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we are self-reliant. And uh, so it evades a sort of critique of larger systems that we're all subject to and crushed under at times and um, but I think it's it's not just a left-right thing I think it's has a really deep and complicated history on the left and I, I found that to be interesting and in safe and and in these worlds that the new age world definitely has a lot complicated and close relationship to the left all right so um, if you stick around for the 930 film Todd will say a bit about imitation of life he's also coming back tomorrow for um, Dottie gets spanked and beyond the valley of the dolls maybe one other film um, so thank you very much all for coming and thank you Todd thank you for being here. thank you <laughs>